As most of you know, and as Elizabeth reminded us, we've been taking a deep dive into this gospel. And we've learned that Mark's gospel is this fast-paced and ferocious uh, book. It's a fast-paced and ferocious gospel. Mark's writing to prove a point. And that point is that the long-awaited rescuer king has arrived. And that rescuer king is Jesus of Nazareth. It's been said that over 60% of our communication between one another is nonverbal. So we actually communicate more by what we do than by what we say. And it really feels like Mark has grabbed a hold of that. Because what Mark does in his gospel is he shows us a lot of the action of Jesus. Mark is really interested in action. Whereas other gospel writers are really interested in what Jesus said. We saw this focus on action last week as we walked through Mark, and we're going to see it again today. Last week, Pastor Robert Livingston walked us through a couple of really intense scenes in the Gospel of Mark. We saw first that on the Sabbath day, a holy day for the Israelite people, Jesus goes into a place of worship and he begins teaching. And he's teaching with authority. People are amazed at how he's teaching. He's actually teaching as somebody who knows God. And then Mark says immediately, a man that was demon-possessed shows up in the synagogue, or maybe he was already in the synagogue, and Jesus rebukes the demon out of him. And then we get this scene, this personal and real, a little bit more quiet scene inside Peter's house a little bit later where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick with a fever, and Jesus heals her. Through this scene in Mark last week, we saw this authority of Jesus on display, and Pastor Robert Livingston showed us that this is an authority we can run to, and this is an authority that we can rest in. But what is happening in Galilee? I mean, this Jesus of Nazareth has shown up on scene in Capernaum in Galilee, and he's given this message, this authoritative message of repent and believe. He showed up in synagogues teaching. He's told these guys, these fishermen, hey, you guys, follow me. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's moving action and authority like nobody ever has. And today in our text, things are going to get a little bit hectic. The people of the area have begun to hear about this Jesus of Nazareth. They've begun to, to see what he can do. They begin to hear of his healings, and they're going to begin to press in. They're going to come. They're going to come to experience this miracle worker. And when they do, what's Jesus going to do? And we're going to see that today. We're going to see what Jesus does with all of his authority when the crowds press in. And it may not be what we think. Jesus is going to do what he thinks is most important. And that's not always what we think is most important. We're going to see it certainly wasn't what the disciples were thinking was most important. Today, as Jesus always does, he's going to surprise us with who he is. He's going to reframe our thinking about what's important. And he's going to give us one more reason to follow him as king. Let's move into our text today. If you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 32 through 38 today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll start walking through the text. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, your steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting for those of us who fear you, and know your name. And Father, you tell us that um, in your word that the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom. And I ask this morning that we would begin to more rightly see and know you through your word. 
I ask that you would massage your truths into our hearts and minds, that your spirit would come and open up our understanding to who you are and to who Jesus is and make Jesus all the more beautiful to us. Show us our need of him and show us how you desire more and more day by day to fill us with, with you. We love you and we trust you. Amen. <clears throat> so starting in verse 32, the scene that we're in now in Mark's gospel is actually a continuation of what happened uh, last Sunday, what we walked through last Sunday. Last Sunday was really daytime action, and now we've moved into evening with Jesus and the disciples. <clears throat> if you think about these four disciples, uh, who are um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, here in Capernaum, Jesus has really caused a stir, and he's really worked up a lot of things for them. So much has happened to them, and so quickly. His earlier adventures in the synagogue have gained him attention. News of how he healed Peter's mother-in-law has gotten around quickly. And when the Sabbath day ends, verse 34 says, They brought to him all who were sick and all who were oppressed by demons. So what's going on here is that the people, likely the disciples, they're all in a frenzy about what they've seen Jesus do. They're excited about what he's done. He's um, healing people. He's cast out demons. They've seen him teaching in the synagogue, and they, they want more of this. And so they go out into the streets, and they gather up people. They gather up friends. They gather up neighbors. They gather up guys laying on the side of the road, and they bring them to Peter's house. And this line begins to form. So people begin to gather, and a line begins to form outside Peter's house. The people are here. They're ready to be healed. They're ready to experience this miracle worker. They've already seen or heard what he can do, and they're, they're wanting healing. They want their back to work right. They want to be able to walk again. They want to be able to feel normal again. And so they press in, and they're waiting to be healed and freed from their afflictions. And what does Jesus do in this moment? What does he do with this holy power that he's been given to heal? Well, the text tells us he heals. It's simple. He heals many he has compassion on the people. He cares for them as they come to him. As they fill the house one by one and come to Jesus, he's the son of the living God and he heals. And if we go off the rest of the scriptures, he almost always heals with a touch. Is that not beautiful? Is that compassion not beautiful? As I was kind of thinking about this week, it really resonated with me in our current, um, I know we're coming out of COVID environment. But one of the things I've really missed since um, we've been trying to navigate through COVID, one of the things I've missed here in a Sunday gathering is like great and wonderful gospel hugs, like where you just hug a brother or sister in Christ. Like I'm not talking about like the side hug. I'm talking about like the rib breaking, big embrace. I've missed those. And for those of you who don't like hugs, remember that Paul says that we should greet each other with a holy kiss. So... So let's just keep hugging each other, and that'll be great. Um, but I've missed that. Uh, we, our family experienced COVID in early January. I got it first, and I had to stay away from the rest of my family, and that was hard for me because I missed them. And then they got sick, and then I could hang around with them again and, and, and embrace them. But I wanted physical contact with my family. And the fact that Jesus almost always touches people to heal them should tell us about the compassionate nature of our Savior. He is touching the untouchable. 
He's embracing the repulsive. As this king begins to break his kingdom into the world, he's doing so with compassion on those who are struggling with physical sickness. So Jesus heals here. He shows us who he is through his kind and compassionate authority. But if we look at the text, it's not just the physically sick that are coming to him. There's another type of person coming to him too, the the demon-possessed. And just an aside here, a tidbit, it's important for us to see that Mark makes a distinction. There are sick people coming and there are demon-possessed people coming. We shouldn't be confused by this. To be sick doesn't necessarily mean we're demon-possessed, and to be demon-possessed doesn't necessarily mean we're sick. uh, Last week, Pastor Robert reminded us of this wonderful advice from C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis says that as Christians, we should definitely be aware that the devil and demons exist, but we shouldn't pretend like nothing's their fault. We also shouldn't act like everything is their doing. And so here, Mark is clearly saying there's two kinds of people coming. So there are those who are being tormented by demonic oppression, and they're brought into this house where Jesus is, along with the sick people. They're all coming to him. And what what does Jesus do here? He rebukes the demons and casts them out. He has authority here too. Authority with a mere word over the unseen spiritual realm around us. The forces of Satan, the forces of evil, the forces of darkness that are inhabiting humanity are breaking under the mere word of Jesus Christ. Do you guys see this? Understand that nowhere in Scripture does Jesus touch a person to remove a demon from them. We don't get a scene like we do in modern movies where people are sort of wrestling with a possessed person to get a demon out of them. Jesus simply shows up and he speaks. He says, leave. Get out. The Word of God speaks, John might say. That's all it takes. He commands And they obey. This is a picture of King Jesus and his power. What we should see in this, what's helpful for us to see in this, is that in these moments, God is making good on his promise all the way back in Genesis 3. You guys remember this? After the fall of Adam and Eve, God says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Essentially, at this moment in Genesis, what God is promising Satan, he's saying, Satan, a reckoning is coming. A day will come when you, Satan, are crushed. And now that day has arrived in Jesus Christ. Satan and his demons have had a bit of a run in creation, and now God is invading to take back what is rightfully his. Jesus' ministry is the beginning of that invasion. It's the kingdom of God breaking into the kingdom of this world, and Jesus, the rightful king, is putting his enemies to flight by merely speaking a word. This is the cosmic authority of Jesus Christ at its most powerful, that those forces which are in most violent opposition to him, must still obey his every word. He even tells the demons to be quiet after he kicks them out. That's the elephant in the room, right? That's the strange part of the text. What's going on here? Why does he do that? He does that because they're not proclaiming him as Lord. Demons are merely naming Jesus as they know him. They're stating a cosmic fact. 
You are the Holy One of God. We learned that this is what they say in the text from last week. They're regurgitating information they know about Him. They're not joyfully proclaiming His Lordship over them. And He doesn't want that kind of testimony about Him. I think there's a lesson. If we dig around a little bit, I think there's a lesson in there for us as well. There's a way in which we can know a whole lot of information about Jesus but not actually submit to him as Lord of our lives. And we should be really, really careful that we don't wade into those waters, especially if we love theology, if we love doctrine, if we love arguing. We may find ourselves as as more of a demon than a disciple. Jesus has really shown us who he is. He's compassionately healed the sick and he's rebuked Demons by the authority of, a, of his word. It's a roller coaster of a scene, and just as abruptly as that began, it's over. The day ends. <clears throat> In verse 35, Mark brings us to a new morning. And what do we find Jesus doing before we even wake up? The text tells us Jesus gets up early, even before the sun rises, and what does he do? Does he go to Round Rock Donuts? Does he fix himself, I don't know, maybe he's on the healthy side, he fixes himself some juice and kale, does a little exercise, no. What's the first thing Jesus does in the morning? He says he rises early to pray. I hope this is a safe place, and maybe you feel what I feel when I read this, but this is terrifying. Most of us don't really value prayer as powerful or as important. If we really did, it would be the mark of all of our lives as Christians. Jesus puts no other activity before his day, before this. And Mark wants us to see this. This quiet moment in prayer is in stark contrast to all the chaos that went on yesterday. Yesterday was a nonstop flow of activity, and then the next morning, Jesus rises early and disappears. The ESV even says desolate. Jesus looks for a desolate place where there's nobody around, where it's quiet, where nobody can bother him, so that he can commune with his Father in prayer. Mark's showing us, through Jesus' action, what Jesus finds most important. Martin Luther The father of the Protestant Reformation is famously quoted as saying this. He said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. For most of us, prayer is probably the first thing that gets cut when we have so much to do today, right? Prayer doesn't even get cut when we have so much to do today. Prayer gets cut because we stayed up too late and we need to sleep in. We stayed up too late on a Netflix binge or we stayed up too late scrolling Twitter and now we need to get every ounce of sleep that we can. Prayer gets cut because we think we need to do something more productive. We need to do action, not sit in prayer, not sit in communion with our Father. A prayer gets cut because we want to just have, do something more fun for the morning. And why do we do this? Why do we really behave like this as Christians? We can confess and we can say, I just really don't think prayer is that important. I confess that. And that's true. That's a reality. And most of us think that way. Or we can say, you know, 
I'm just lazy, I'm undisciplined, I'm not doing that. And that's also true, and that's a reality. And some of us have to work on that. We need to confess and repent of that. But there's a root that's deeper than this. We think prayer isn't important because deep down, we're relying on our own self-sufficiency. Deep down, we think we got it. But here's the weird irony to this whole situation. Most of us know we don't. Most of us know we don't got it. No matter how put together we may appear or feel here this morning, what we really know for truth is that we tend to just make a mess of things. We don't got it. And yet still, functionally, we live in a way that relies on self instead of relying on the sufficiency of our holy God. We think we can make it through that meeting. We think we can give that presentation. We think we can teach that classroom. We think we can write this sermon. We think we can change another diaper without ever going before our Father in communion and in prayer and seeking His face. A life void of prayer is evidence of trust in our own self-sufficiency, but a life rich in prayer reveals our trust in God. And do you know who had the most trust in God? Jesus. Because he knew him. Because he knew his father. And he trusted him. You know, if there was anyone who lived who didn't have to be humble, didn't have to be, it would have been Jesus, right? Does that make sense? Jesus is the king of the universe. The only person who actually could have been self-sufficient but he wasn't. He was fully God, fully man, the only perfect and full human being. And what's he doing in this scene? He's needing time with his father. He's needing time with dad. He's needing to do the hard work of forsaking other things, even sleep, so that he can get away to a quiet place and commune with his father. He can escape, retreat, and he can pray. The book of Isaiah tells of the future suffering servant, which is Jesus. In Isaiah 50, it says these beautiful words about how the servant King Jesus will meet with the Father to hear from him. Here's what it says. Morning by morning, he awakens. The he in this text is God. So we'll read it like this. Morning by morning, God awakens. God awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Do we follow Jesus with the same posture towards prayer? Do we allow God to awaken us in the morning as we meet with him in prayer? Or do we just roll over and grab our phones and see what went on last night and we're sort of salivating over the little red dots that say there was some action that we need to catch up on? Do we allow him to awaken our ear and to teach us while we pray? Or are we just fast asleep? with no regard for the wonder that God wants to show us as we pray. How beautiful it would be if we were up early seeking the face of our Father because He delights in that time with us. Do you know that Proverbs 15.8 says that God delights in our prayers? And Zephaniah 3.17 says that He takes great delight in you. He actually delights in you when you come to Him. He enjoys that time with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to meet with you. Because of the work of Jesus Christ in your life, God actually likes you. 
He delights when you come to him, when you pour out your needs to him, when you pour out your desires to him, when you say, God, I don't got it and I need you today. And not only does he delight in that, he provides himself with you as you pray, massaging truth into your heart, massaging truth into your mind so that you're shaped and you're formed to represent Jesus more and more. And Jesus understood this need fully. He understood that he needed the Father. He depended upon him. The same man who yesterday healed and mended people with a touch and kicked demons out of people's bodies with a word is this morning looking for a quiet place that he can go pray. Looking for a quiet place that he can commune with his Father. What kind of king is this? Let's keep going. In verse 36 now, remember Jesus has gotten up early and he's gone off to pray. And Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they come to look for him. But they're not just looking for him. The original language in the text says they're hunting him. There's actually this hostile nuance to it. They're looking high and low because they've got a reason to find him. How could Jesus disappear at a time like this? Doesn't he know we have important things to do? They didn't let him stay away. Jesus is off trying to pray, trying to have time with his father, and here they come. Jesus, we found you. Everyone is looking for you, they tell him. What they're saying is, everyone is here again this morning. They're coming again to be healed, and they're coming again to have demons kicked out of them. What you did yesterday was awesome. Come do more. This is great. There's so much ministry happening. This is what we dreamed about. And now we can do Bible studies about it, and we can do Bible quizzes about it, and we can have small group meetings about it, and we can do church project after church project about it. We have all these ministry things we can ride, this wave of excitement. They're excited, and they're riled up in such a short time. Their ministry is thriving by all earthly standards. These were pastors or church planters They'd be called on podcasts. People would be saying, how'd you guys do this? How'd you guys do so much in such a short time? But then Jesus crushes their party. He says, no. No, I'm not going back. It's time to move on. Wait, what, Jesus? You remember that guy yesterday, Jesus, with the seeping wound? You healed that thing. You remember Billy who had the crooked leg and he hadn't walked straight in nine years. You touched that leg and you healed it and now he's great. You remember the lady who lived out in the leper colony. She hadn't seen her family in I don't know how many years. And Jesus, you healed her and brought her back into her family. You reunited her family. And you remember that other guy who was running around, frothing at the mouth, barking and growling at everybody. You yanked a demon right out of that guy, Jesus. What do you mean you're not going to do this anymore? This is what the kingdom is about, right? This is what's important, right? We're healing people and we're bossing demons around and everything is big and it's exciting right now. There's something more important, Jesus says to them. Believe it or not, guys, he says there's something far more important than healing people's sicknesses and throwing demons out. I need to go tell people the good news. 
I need to go tell people the news that will heal more than just their sickness. I need to go tell people the news that will free them from more than just demonic oppression. I need to go tell the people the news that a rescuer has come, that the kingdom of God is near, and that my father wants them at his table with him, so they have got to repent and believe. This is the only thing that brings true life and true healing and true freedom. Redeemer family, I hope we see this this morning. Jesus is never engaged in a healing campaign. That's not why he came. In fact, if you do a study of the gospel accounts, uh, Jesus never goes looking for somebody. People are either brought to him, they come to him, or he encounters them while he's along the way. His healing ministry was never really by design, but merely a natural response. Hear this. A natural response from a compassionate king as he's on another mission. And nowhere does he make that more clear than in our text today. Everyone is looking for you, the disciples said. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's what I came for. Jesus is saying that the declaration of the gospel message is far more important than the frenzy the disciples experienced yesterday. Sure, Jesus could stick around. He could keep working up a name for himself. He could keep gaining his popularity. He could keep doing this, but he doesn't. He performs these miracles because of his compassionate nature and to prove that his message is true. But healing isn't the point. Freedom from demons isn't the point. John Calvin puts it this way. He says that the miracles were appendages to the word and that relationship was not to be reversed. In other words, these miracles that have been going on and will continue to go on are not the point of Jesus' ministry. Please don't lose sight of that. The gospel message is the point of Jesus' ministry. We must allow God to reframe our thinking about what's important. The truth that rescue is here, the gospel message, that is what truly brings life and healing and freedom. As we made our way through the text today, we've walked through a really intense scene in the life of Jesus. And it's really my hope that we've seen him and understood him as he's exercised compassion on the sick. And we've watched him as he's declared authority over demons. And then we've seen him pull back in humble submission. And here at the end, we see Jesus reframing the way we think by putting the gospel message as the priority More than healing physical sickness, the reality of the gospel is that it heals the sickness of sin that pervades every human soul. More than freeing a person from demonic oppression, the gospel frees us from the curse of the law by showing us that we have a Savior. We need a Savior and we have a Savior. So what about being healed? What about casting out demons? Are those things worthless? Not at all, family. And when we're sick, and if any of us should ever find ourselves in places of demonic oppression, we should seek God desperately, and we should expect healing from Him. And we should pray for and earnestly seek the gifts that God generously gives as a good Father. We should absolutely do that. But so much more than that, we should be sure we know 
and trust and understand the gospel message because Jesus knows what you and I so often forget. That my life and your life are simply a blip on the radar screen of history. That one day, this flesh will fail. That the lungs right now that help me breathe air in and help me breathe air out are not going to do that anymore. That the heart right now that pumps blood through my body in a way that keeps me up here on stage talking to you guys this morning is not going to pump blood in that way anymore. Our physical bodies will die, but our soul, our soul will not. And it's far more important to God that your soul be healed of sin than it is for your body to be healed. As a Christian, you're going to get a new one one day anyway. Does God not have compassion on me? Does he not want me to be healed? Of course he does. We saw that earlier in Jesus. Out of his gracious compassion, God does heal. Remember that Jesus shows us the true nature of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the book of Hebrews says. So when we see Jesus, we're seeing who God is. And do you see what Jesus is revealing to us in this action, this action of moving on? He's showing us the heart of God. He's showing us the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. Do you know what God wants more than your physical healing? He wants you, church. He wants you. He wants you with him. He wants you with him today. He wants you with him tomorrow. He wants you with him for eternity. Because he knows that that is what will bring you true joy. He desires to look off in the distance and to see you running to him after you've heard the gospel message. Covered in tattered rags, tired of all the foolishness, tired of chasing everything else, covered in muck and mud, Because Jesus says that's the point at which God pulls up the garments of his robe so that he can run. And he runs to you. And he embraces you. He wraps his arms around you. He kisses your face and he lays a robe of royalty on your shoulders and he says, welcome home. I'm so glad you came. Let's have a feast. Jesus wants you home with the Father, and he wants you home with him. And the only way to get there is to become a citizen of the kingdom of God by believing the gospel message. And the only way anyone can ever believe the gospel message is to hear it. And so Jesus, in this moment, moves on so that more people can hear Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask right now, I lift up and petition to you, everybody in this church who is sick, everybody who is dealing with infirmity, everybody who is dealing with 
pain, everybody who is dealing with hurt in their physical body. And we ask for healing. We know that you have designed and formed every sinew, every fiber, every nerve, and we ask that you would heal. We plead with you for that. We ask for that. We also ask, Father, that anybody who's experiencing oppression, Father, anything that, any work or effect of Satan, Father, any bitterness, any wrath, any gossip, any slander, anything that may be pressing upon people's lives from Satan or his works and effects, we ask, Father, for you to remove that. And we ask also that the reality of who Jesus is just be stark in front of us this morning. That it be clear, that it be crystal clear, that compassion and authority and love that we see in this text from Jesus be an example to us of who you are. I ask that your spirit would empower us to give more and more of ourselves to you day after day after day. Help us love you rightly and know you truly. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's authority.